You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. It is great to be here. I want you to know I, I'm sort of a guest, but I don't feel like I'm one now. I've spent obviously a lot of time with Jared and with Chuck and some of your leaders, but even this weekend, um, just Friday night with your men, um, some a lot of you men, and then yesterday with your missional community leaders, and then last night again with some elders, and, and then this this morning to kind of cap that off. So I sort of feel like I'm amongst friends already, even though some of you I haven't met others. I was just sitting up there, and I just told Jared, I said, God, just really, I'm just glad to be here, and I'm glad to be with you. Uh, I love what God is doing in this church. I love what God is doing in this part of the country. And some of the things that you all are walking into, you need to know, um, is kind of on the front end. Uh, some of the stuff this church is touching, some of the stuff that your leadership is leading you toward. I will tell you this, if a church in, 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 in the year 2018 is not thinking this far ahead, the way some of your leaders are in this church and the way you're moving, um, it's, a church is going to get left behind. Uh, because if you can't talk about things that are real to people's lives and connect the truth of God to the truth of my life, then I, I just, I'm not going to show up just to hear somebody talk, and I'm not going to show up just to hear some good music, because something needs to change my life. And it's not a something, it's a, it's a him. And I want to know him and walk with him, and I want to be around people that are doing the same thing. So it's good to be here. I want to show a picture of my family, because I'm going to talk about them. If you can bring that up, I'm going to tell a story here at the beginning. I've got six kids. Uh, been married to Brenda there on the, uh, she's going to be on the uh, left side of that screen there. I've been married almost 31 years. Uh, my oldest daughter, uh, her husband and my two grandchildren are not in that picture. Uh, her husband's a Navy pilot, and he was deployed when that picture was taken. Um, so it's my oldest daughter. i got a 27-year-old and a 25-year-old son and a 23-year-old daughter, a 21-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and a 16-year-old son. So it goes Jen Ray, Jay, Jessica, Anna Kay, Drew, and David. And uh, I'm going to tell a story about Jay here in a second, but I just wanted you to see who I was talking about. Uh, when I start talking about some of these guys, and by the way, this story I'm going to tell you at the beginning, I have Jared's permission to tell. So if you're going to get, if you're, if you don't like it, you can talk to him later. Uh, when my kids were younger, and you can see, yeah, you can take it off. When my kids were younger, uh, we talked a lot, and I mean, I think we talked a lot about their maleness, about their femaleness, about their sex and their sexuality. Uh, we just really didn't want that subject to be taboo in my house. We didn't want to have the talk. We wanted to have lots of talks. We wanted it to be normal to talk about how God made them and what God wanted for them and what that would look like someday for them to have a spouse and what that might be like and, and, and the glory of that and the beauty of that. So we wanted it to be just a normal part of the way we talk in our home. And, and, and again, we wanted our kids to hear it from us. Um, uh, we, um, uh, I had no firsthand experience with anyone dealing with that in my home growing up. And so I, I awkwardly kind of stepped into it. And I just, I thought, you know what? I want my kids to know that I'm an expert about this. Because truthfully, I am the expert. And I told them that. I said, you need to know with your friends, it's the blind leading the blind. Uh, but I know what I'm talking about. And so if you want to know anything about this, you need to know. I'll talk to you about this anytime about anything. I'm the one you can come to for answers. Uh, but you need to know, son, or even my daughters, but especially my sons, you need to know I know, ex- I know what I'm talking about. And your friends don't. So let's talk about it. <laughs> in fact, this is crazy. My 27-year-old daughter recently told us, now she's a parent now, so she's thinking about this. We thought we overdid it. Like, we thought we over-talked it. Like, we thought, you know, are we kind of pushing this too far? 
And she told us recently, she said, Mom and Dad, you didn't talk about it enough. And we said, well, you're kidding. And she said, no, Daddy. She said, in light of everything else I'm hearing so much about all the time, the flood and the tidal wave and the messages about that topic that I'm hearing from everyone around me and everything around me, you, it was hard for you to compete. So as much as you thought you were overdoing it, I wish you'd have talked about it even more than you did. Kind of made us take a step back. But we were the experts, and when we talked about it, we talked about it with correct anatomical terms. Uh, we wanted to make sure they heard us talking about it kind of the way it was, and we talked about it in detail. Now, I'm going to soften this story up a little bit uh, for the setting that we're in, okay? But I want you to know, when I talked to my kids this way, it was just, it was just right down in it, okay? So I was lying in bed one night and uh, talking with the oldest son about, about him, him and, and, and he was just a little guy at the time, and uh, uh, I'm lying here in bed, and, and he says, Daddy, how do babies happen? Now, we'd already been having that discussion. It wasn't new, but I thought, okay, here, I'm going to go back again and talk about it. So anatomical terms, I use correct terms. I said, you know, Jay, remember, Daddy talked to you about this. You know, you know how you're different from your sisters. You know, you got body parts that your sisters don't have. And I told him what they were, reminded him again. You know, because they're, you know, little bitty kids are running around. You know, you're bathing them together sometimes and all that. And they're running around the house and they see each other. I said, you know how you're different from your sisters? Well, you know, you're like your daddy and your mama's like your sisters. And I got body parts that your mama doesn't have and she has body parts I don't have. And here's how that happens, son. That body part that you have that's not like your mom's and it's not like your sister's Well, that daddy has. Well, that body part goes inside mommy and leaves part of daddy inside mommy. And then that grows into a baby for nine months. And that same place where daddy's body part went in, that's where that baby comes out. And I explained the whole thing again to him, okay? Again, with correct anatomical terms. And, and, the, and the other thing that's interesting about this, so of our six kids, our, our fourth daughter, Anna Kay, was a, was a planned home birth. So what happened was I'm in our bedroom with my wife getting ready to give birth. She was getting ready to give birth to my daughter, Anna Kay. And it, yeah, let's correct that. And at the very last minute, like right before Anna Kay's getting ready to come out, okay, we didn't know whether it was going to be a boy or a girl, so this baby's getting ready to come out. I got three siblings in the, in the bedroom, like outside the bedroom waiting. So at the very last minute, I'm in there with a midwife, you know, and my wife's sitting on this birthing chair, and this baby's about ready to drop out. We called the older kids in. So the older kids come into the room, and they're sitting there like watching me, and boom, this little girl kind of drops into my hands right outside of mommy. And I'm introducing this little girl to their sister and book, uh, to their siblings, umbilical cord still attached. I'm cutting the umbilical cord. All this is happening. So my older kids had the memory of that. Now, somewhat traumatic memory, but it was a memory. <laughs> so, so again, I'm having this conversation with him. I said, remember that place where Anna Kay came out? Well, that's the same place where that part of daddy went in and left the part of daddy inside, connected with the egg with mama, creates this baby. Nine months later, that baby came right back out the same place where daddy went in. Explain all that to him. We're laying there in the bed. He's okay, daddy. Okay, eyes are big. He looks at me. He says, so daddy, when, when that happens, when that body part goes in, he goes, does it come off? <laughs> So I start all over again. I said, no, son. Okay, remember then, can I explain how all that works? And I use a lot more detail. Again, I'm going over and over again with this, my, my kids. And so he just finally, eventually, he's laying there, and I'm holding him, kind of, you know, just got my arms around my little guy like that. And I remember he just looks up at me, and all of a sudden looks at me and goes, you know, Daddy? He said, um, or I was talking to him. I said, son, I said, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Just kind of just loving on him and hugging him. And he just looks up at me like that, and he goes, wait a minute. He goes, how can that be? I thought I came out of mom. Yeah. Explain it again. You know. Okay. And then when I finished, I finished that time, he looked up and he goes, God, daddy, you know what? He goes, I wish I would have come out of you instead of mom. <laughs> and, and I said, no, you don't, son. No, you don't. <laughs> and, and someday you're going to be really glad that you didn't come out of me. Listen, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to parenting, 
mom plays an indispensable role that dad cannot play. And in some cases, and I just mentioned one of them, dad does not want to play. But it is just as true that dad plays an indispensable role that mom cannot play. You see, both mom and dad matter. I'm the fifth of six kids, Gene, Jack, Jim, Joanne, Jeff, and Judy. And we had a dog named Joker. And my dad, when I was, my oldest sister was 14, all the way down, I was three years old, and then my little sister was three months old, right behind me. My dad had been serially unfaithful to my mom, and just before my third birthday, my dad told my mom he was going to leave her, and he left her. And then he married the woman that he'd been having an affair with most recently. And he was married to her for two years, and after two years, my dad divorced the woman he had married after he divorced my mom. And he asked my mom if he could come back. And so when I was five years old, my dad remarried my mom. And stayed for nine months. And then divorced my mom again. And then went and remarried the woman he'd been married to before. So between the age of three and five, my dad was married four times to two women, twice to my mom. And my family managed the tragedy of my dad's absence by minimizing, minimizing how much he meant to us. And living in denial of how bad it hurt and how lonely it was that he was gone. So we would say things around my family growing up that weren't true. We would say things like, we're better off without my dad. We would say things like, we don't miss what you never had. And I did not start to lay claim to how much I needed my dad and how much his absence hurt and how lonely it was growing up without him or how much I needed to grieve his absence from my life until I had children of my own and I began to grapple with how much they needed me and how much my absence would devastate them. Somehow we just moved on as if nothing happened, or we tried to act like nothing happened. But I thought, what would happen if I just didn't come home? Now, most of my kids are grown, but I've still got two teenage boys at that house that I'm going home to today. What happened if I just stayed here and did not come home? Would that be a small deal to them? That they would be able to move on and say we're better off without him? Or we didn't need what we didn't have? No, I think my absence would devastate them. Proverbs 17, 6 says this, speaking of sons and fathers, but I think it's applicable to both daughters and husbands and moms and dads. Here's the the statement of Proverbs 17, 6. It says, the glory of sons is their fathers. It says, the glory of sons is their fathers. You see, we often see our kids as our glory, but that's not what this says. It says, the glory of sons is their fathers. It's the other way around. That word we translate glory there, it means weight. So the weight of a child is that child's parent. In particular here, the the father. The substance of a child is their mom and their dad. But specifically here is talking about a father. That the weight, the substance, Robert Bly calls this a food. He says it's a food that, 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 that a parent feeds his children. And it's a nourishment that if given to a child, that child receives a sense of stability moving through his or her life. It's a weight it's a sense of who he or she is and what, who or he, what he or she was meant to be. It's a food that if not given to a child often leads to this gnawing sense of inadequacy that results in overcompensating, wandering, left to figure out life without a mom or a dad-sized hole in their chest. Why in the midst of everything that I ever accomplished did I often feel like that it wasn't enough? Or even worse, what compelled me to even need to succeed at the levels that I attempted to succeed? Why has it been so difficult in my life 
to separate how I'm doing from who I am? Why has it been so difficult to separate my performance from my worth and my value? Why do I often approach relationships with older men and mentors with an unspoken demand that they love me and treat me like a son? Why do I often feel like a boy in a man's body? Or why do I often feel like a boy trying to figure out life in a man's world? We know from research about human development that attachment is, uh, for a child is primarily rooted in their relationship with their mother. And it starts in the womb. And I don't think any of us in here would argue against how important a mother is in the home. I don't think any of us would argue that. But what about dad? From ages one to five, every child is asking and discovering answers to the question, what am I? From one to five, what am I? From six to eight, in light of what I am, evaluating what do I want to be? And then from nine to 12, in light of what I am and in light of what I want to be, now how do I act? And then from 12 until marriage, asking the question, how am I doing? In other words, what am I? What do I want to be? How do I act in light of what I am, in light of what I want to be? How am I doing in light of what I want to be, in light of what I am? What am I? What do I want to be? How do I act? And then how I'm doing? And here's what's incredible. At each stage, for both boys and girls, they use their fathers as the primary yardstick upon which to define themselves and answer those questions. What am I? What do I want to be? How do I act in light of what I want to be and what I am? And then how am I doing? The yardstick is dad. The measure's dad. The, the answer to those questions is found in dad. And that makes sense when we think about a boy looking to his dad. And so we think, well, what about the girl? Listen, it's still the dad. Only in this case, it's that girl in contrast to her dad. Where the boy identifies with his dad, the young girl is looking and saying, how do I relate to my dad in contrast to my dad? Because I know I'm different than my dad. So how is my dad relating to me in light of my unique creation as a feminine woman? And then I'm watching how he relates to my mom and how she relates to him. And I'm finding my identity and how I relate to him. And I'm learning how to relate to men someday and how I'm learning how to relate to my father. Do I want to be... What I am. And how do I act in light of what I am? And then how am I doing? And I'm looking at my dad to answer that question. Even if I'm a woman. Maybe your mom and dad divorced. And when your dad or your mom left, most often it seems like it's the dad. Maybe you still remember that day. And that's the day that something died inside of you. Or maybe you were abandoned by your dad. Or just as bad off you felt like you were. You know, for years, for years, my wife would say to me, you're just no fun at Christmas. And honestly, for years, she has driven. If my family has any kind of great memories around Christmas, I'm talking about my, me and my kids and my wife. If we have any great memories around Christmas, I can tell you it's because my wife has made it happen. And we've been married 31 years, and I've known her for 36. And it only dawned on us a couple years ago you know, in part of my story, my dad told my mom he was leaving in August. And she said, well, you at least wait until Christmas. And he waited until Christmas. And so the night of Christmas Day is when I remember watching my dad walk out that front door with a suitcase in his hand. Incredibly, I never put that together. Christmas just hadn't been real fun for me. And it wasn't something I was even conscious of. 
Just somehow my body knew that something wasn't good about this time of year. Maybe you grew up with your dad and your dad was very successful and every time you saw him, he was leaving, which in part was how he was so successful. Maybe your dad lived in your house, but he was absent from your life. Maybe, maybe your, dad, your dad had a favorite and it was you. And you liked that, but you feel, feel some shame about that. Or maybe the favorite was another brother or another sister that he thought was prettier or smarter or more talented than you. Or maybe it was that other brother who played baseball or hunted and fished, and you were the piano player, and he never seemed to understand you. Maybe your dad was passive. Maybe all you saw was your dad in front of a TV or with a drink in his hand. Maybe your dad gave you his stuff, but he never gave you what was inside his chest. And any of all that, any and all of that, creates an unbelievable wound. Why else would an 18-year-old with a perfect grade point average, college is recruiting him to play football, why would that same young man drive home some nights from school, driving his 1962 Ford Falcon van, down Interstate 75 in Dayton, Ohio, wanting just to drive it off the road and drive it into a pylon or over into the Miami River. Why in the midst of all that seemingly success did I often feel like such a failure? You see, the tapes would play inside my head. If my dad knew me, if he knew how good I was, he would want to know me. If my dad knew me, he would be proud of me. If he knew what I was doing, he would be proud of me. I remember I, I, uh, I delivered from fifth grade all the way through high school. I delivered a morning paper route. Like I would get up every morning, six days a week at 3.30 in the morning to deliver 150 newspapers. Go back to bed for about 45 minutes and then wake up and go to school. I did that Monday through Saturday. From sixth grade till I went to college. And I remember I'd play a football game on Friday night. And I was decent in football, good enough that they would write about me sometimes. And I remember the very first time, I remember the very first time, I mean, I had, it was... It was, things were just happening for me. And I don't know why they did, but it just, some good things happened. I remember I would wake up, I'd go to bed, I'd play a football game on Friday night. Those papers would drop on my front porch at 3.30 in the morning. I remember waking up, going downstairs, popping open those papers. I had to sit on the floor and fold all of them, put them in my sacks before I knew how to deliver them. But I remember the first thing I did was open them up. I flipped to the sports page. I want to see what they wrote about the Roth game. And I remember the first time I saw my name in a headline. And I'll tell you what I thought right away about that. My first thought was, I wonder if my dad is going to see a copy of the paper. And if he does, I wonder what he's going to think about me. See, if I had a son like me, I think I'd be proud of him. That's what I would say to myself. And so I just kept running. I kept working harder. I kept getting better. Driven to win my dad's approval or any man's approval, consciously or unconsciously, to get his attention or maybe show him that he was wrong about me, that he was missing out on something or someone. You see, sometimes our response to the absent father wound takes us in the other direction, rather running away from the hurt and the loneliness by working hard at not caring. Did you hear what I just now said? Working hard at not caring, working hard at not performing, working hard at depressing our God-given desire for life and the life we were made for. We can go either direction with this. If for some in this room, dad was physically there, he might, even, he might even have come to our games or our dance recitals or whatever it was, but our dads were still gone, like a hologram, emotionally and spiritually absent. And he didn't beat you, maybe he might have, but in this case, maybe he didn't beat you or rage at you. He just wasn't present, or he just didn't pay attention to you. Or maybe worse, he, which by the way, maybe worse than if he did something more obvious. 
Because benign neglect is often more harmful than actual neglect. Because at least with neglect, we can call it something. With benign neglect, it looks good enough that we have to ignore it, that we don't understand the impact that it had on us. So here I am today, and whether I see it or not, that absence is still having an impact on me. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says this. It says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, in the hinge of this passage is the but, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That word for anger there, it's talking about a deep-seated resentment, like a, like an, like a low-grade simmering resentment. And resentment is the survival or the power response to the vulnerability of being hurt. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Fathers, you can leave them and leave them resenting your absence. Or, or the but, or you can actually be present in their lives to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, the lack of discipline and instruction leads to drifting and wandering. It's kind of like if I was on this stage, and, and, and like I can see where I'm at, so I don't experience a whole lot of fear up here. Because I know there's a ledge, and I know there's stairs, and I know those instruments back here. But, but try blindfolding me. Try blindfolding me, and now what happens? I'm trying to find my way around this place, and, and I'm falling off the stage, and I'm, I'm bumping into instruments, and I'm breaking my leg down these stairs, and I don't know how I fell off because there's... Because I can't see. And I can't see because nobody's like helping me to see. Nobody's like showing me how to live. No one's like walking me into life. The yardstick is gone and I'm guessing about everything and trying to figure everything out. And in all that failure and all that bumping around and all the frustration that I don't know what I'm doing, it builds a resentment. And I may take it out on myself about how much I hate who I am, but in the end, it's a deep-seated resentment toward a father who was not there and is not there giving me the food I was meant to get from him. That's why the absent father wound, it results in toxic shame, insecurity, bitterness, resentment, codependence, addiction, gambling, alcohol, drugs, eating, pornography, sex, religion, legalism. I'm naming some in there together. Work. Anything to medicate the exhaustion of our codependence, our loneliness, our hurt, our sadness, our shame, our fear, and our guilt. Just trying to numb. I started looking at pornography when I was eight years old. Because for me, like with many men, it wasn't just about lust. Listen, an eight-year-old doesn't look at pornography because it's about sex. It was about pain, and it was about escape. Because pornography is rooted in fantasy. A fantasy where, where a man or a woman is everything he or she wishes they were to someone else. Pornography is, is rooted in a desire to fill the void of being lusted after, which is an impaired attempt just to be wanted. And where do you think that void came from for this eight-year-old boy? The frustration of a God-given legitimate need to know you matter, you're wanted, and you belong. See, the absent father wound begins to heal when you begin telling the truth about your dad. And the truth most of us have worked so hard not to see. We've worked hard not to see it because if we were to see it, we would feel it. 
We'd feel the sadness and the loneliness and the hurt of it. And if we felt that we'd be in need, and one of the ways we survived our dad's absence is, well, to shame ourselves for our neediness and to create the illusion of our independence and self-sufficiency. You know what Jesus said about this? He said, blessed are those who survive. He said, blessed are those who don't need anyone or anything. Blessed are those who are independent, self-sufficient, whose life is fine. Have you read that? No, he said, blessed are those who what? Who mourn, who weep, who hunger, and who thirst. God doesn't call any of us to be a God. He's got that covered. Rather, he invites us to the possibility of admitting that we are human. And then the gifts we receive when we can surrender to that admission. Which is why, contrary to conventional wisdom, none of us needed a super dad like we really didn't. All we needed was a clumsy dad. A child needs a human dad made out of flesh. A dad who needs God like that child someday will realize they need God. One of my mentors said to me, Jeff, on your best day, not on your worst day, he said, on your best day, you are a giraffe on ice. Now, you picture that for a second. You see, I've been a parent half my life, and here's the honest truth. I still don't know what I'm doing, and I admit this to my kids. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's this amazing passage where the writer describes God as a loving parent who cares enough to discipline, train, and teach those of us who are his children. And hidden in this passage is this very short statement. It's not even the main point of the passage, but it's sort of an aside. And it's mentioned only to illustrate the superiority of God's parenting. And referring to our earthly fathers, here's what it says. It says, For they disciplined us as for a short time, as seemed best to them. Now, I want you to hear what's implied in that statement. I'm going to paraphrase it. This is if God is speaking that statement. Here's how that reads about your dads, my dad. Look, I know they didn't know what they were doing, but they did it anyway. And thank God, or thank me, God speaking, that for your sake, your earthly father only did it for a short time. Because your heavenly father will do it differently for all time. You see, listen, as a dad, I second-guess myself all the time. But I don't wait to have my act together before I'm willing to throw myself onto the ice. Clumsy, human, and in need. My 18-year-old tells me, he says, Dad, you know nothing about being 18. And I say, son, I know what it means to be afraid. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to hurt, to be sad, to be angry. Does that sound like anything like an 18-year-old knows anything about? Yeah, okay, then I know a little bit about what it's like to be 18, because you're human and I'm human. And I was 18 one time. Now, I know that was a long time ago. And then about a year ago, he started calling me Dinosaur Dad. (laughs) Yeah, but rather than argue with him, I was Dinosaur Dad because the way I live life, the way I think about life, the way I'm trying to show him about life, it's just so stinking ancient, okay? So I'm Dinosaur Dad. I didn't argue with him. I said, Dad, I said, son, I said, You're, you got that wrong, actually. I said, I'm a lot older than you think. Like, you think I'm a dinosaur, Dad? No, nah, I'm older than that. I said, uh, I'm prehistoric, Dad. I'm prehistory, Dad. I'm pre-time, Dad. Because I'm depending upon a God who is my Father, who is before time and outside of time, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I said, son, I am pre-time, no-time, Alpha and Omega, Dad. 
And what sounds prehistoric to you is timeless. It's timeless. See, none of us needed a super dad. We needed a clumsy dad. We needed a clumsy dad, and we needed an imperfect dad. Every child comes in the world with two great needs, the need to belong and the need to matter. More than food or water, we need to belong and matter. Not based upon performance, but just because of who we are, whose we are. And in a fallen world with imperfect parents, those children learn that they will belong and they will matter when they behave a certain way. And so they start performing to ensure that they belong and matter and to ensure their survival. And they develop what's called a performance-based identity. Now they have to be good enough to belong and matter. And they're doing that to make sure that their parents will love them. And when this happens, a child never says what's wrong with their parents. They always say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong that I'm not enough? What's wrong that I don't matter? What's wrong with me that I have to work so hard to be loved by you because I have to work to be loved by you? Well, that's not love at all. You will ultimately resent anyone you're having to work for to be loved by. God included. I sat down with my college-aged daughters a while ago, and I, I walked in the room. They were sitting there in their back, the back kind of family room. I looked at them both, and I said, if you haven't done this already, someday you're going to need to tell someone how much I hurt you and how badly I have failed you. And when you do, this won't dishonor me. Actually, it will free you to live your life apart from me. See, until you can know what's wrong with me, you'll never know what's true about you. I want you to be able to talk about me and talk about what's true about me and see what's human about me and then decide you can love who I really am and not who you pretended I was was, or what you thought you needed to tell me I was. Like, tell the truth about me and then decide if you can still love me, which they do. I was meeting with a guy in a small group. I do a lot of group stuff with guys. I was meeting with some guys. I told this story to the missional group leaders yesterday. And I'm sitting with these guys And this one guy looks across the room and he says, I want my tombstone to read, he was a great dad. And all the guys are like, yeah, yeah, he's a great dad. And I stop, I said, whoa, I said, man, I would not want to be one of your children. The guy's like, you're kidding. I said, no, I wouldn't want to be one of your great, I wouldn't want to be one of your children. He goes, well, why wouldn't you want to be one of my children? I want to be a great dad. And I said, man, I said, that's a lot of pressure on them. I said, you think about it. How do you define whether someone was a great dad or even a great mom? What are you going to look at to decide if I was a great dad? Someday to put on my tombstone, I was a great dad. You're going to look for what? Great what? Kids. And I said, what if your kids are just normal? I said, do you realize how much pressure you put on your kids to be great so that you can be great? And that you can feel like your life was somehow significant because you raised great kids? I wouldn't want to be under that kind of pressure. And I wouldn't want my kids to have to lie to me all my life. Or then tell great stories about me when I'm gone. I want them to be honest with me about what it's like to be with me and us have a relationship. I want my tombstone to read he was clumsy, willing, and beautifully imperfect. But I had a real relationship with real kids. And I was a normal dad that had normal kids. A human dad that needed God and needed you with human kids that need God and need you as well. I can take the pressure off to be who God made me to be and not something I have to become so that my parents can like think something about themselves that somehow they live this great life. How about they just live the God-dependent life and then let me go have my own life apart from them? So my dad, my dad never said he was sorry. 
My dad had to be right. And he died defending his right to the end to be a good dad, if you can believe it. So here's why I need to tell the truth about my dad and grieve. This is kind of where I'm moving all this. I'm, 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 I'm walking through this door for a gospel-centered reason. I need to tell the truth about my dad and grieve. I need to stop defending my dad and feel the hurt. I need to stop making excuses for my dad and cry out for what I need from him, from God, or from someone I know will shepherd my heart in tenderness for this reason. Because an imperfect father will by the very nature of his imperfection as a father, and most importantly, his admission of it, if he can do it, lead his children to their perfect heavenly father. I openly remind my kids, my parenting will be your reason to need God. I mean it. On my best day, I will point you to him. And on my worst day, I will point you to him. And both are true. My 18-year-old standing in the kitchen, he said to his mom, this was not long ago, he said, Mom, I'm going to be weeping in a counselor's office someday because of you. <laughs> I held my tongue. I'm sitting thinking, he's probably right. Okay? And I'm thinking, I just hope he finds a good counselor when the time comes. But listen, regardless of what kind of, it's funny, but I want you to know, part of the freedom I think that my kids are starting to enjoy is that it is like normal. That's why I think he even made the statement. I, I, I was riding with my son a couple months ago in the car, and I knew he had something going on with me, and I won't tell the whole story for time, but I looked at him, we're driving, and I said, son, tell me what you don't like about me. And he got a big grin on his face because there's something he wanted to tell me. And it was one of those conversations that didn't end when we got home. We sat in the garage for a half hour while he just got to talk to me about how frustrated he is with the fact that I always have the right answer and I know everything. <laughs> Listen, regardless of what kind of dad you had, every one of us was made to need a heavenly one. You see, the path toward intimacy with your heavenly father is through the truth. Listen. It's through the truth and the grieving over your earthly father. It's the truth and the grief about even the best of fathers and the worst of fathers. Psalm 68, 5 says this, God is a father to the fatherless. Listen, you can read it this way. He was even and is a God, a father to the children whose fathers were even just less. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's one thing to know cognitively up here that you've got a father out there somewhere that you, that, that you are forgiven, that you've been saved from the penalty of your sin, uh, to know Christ has come into your life, to know that you're a child of God, that you're, uh, you have an eternal future that is secure. It's what we sang about already this morning. It, it's one thing to know that here. It's quite another to know that you are a child of God in here and to experience what it means to be a son or a daughter of your father who art in heaven. To experience deep inside my heart what it means to call him a father. To experience what it means that you belong to him and literally he belongs to you. Ephesians chapter 1 starting verse 4 and he says this about our father in heaven. Paul does. He says that this father, it says he chose us in him. 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says, in love, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. He says he predestined us to adoptions as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. He did this to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us, the beloved. In verse 4, it says that if you know Christ, if you know him now today, it's because God chose you for himself for his good pleasure. And what this means is that God didn't just choose us for our benefit. He didn't just choose us because we were in need. He chose us for himself and the choosing makes us his. And that's a choice that God made not just for us, but for himself. Listen, I didn't choose to have children because there were some unborn babies out there that needed parents. And I've got biological children and I've got adopted children. And with all six of those kids, I had children by the grace of God because I wanted a relationship with those kids. I wanted kids in my life and I wanted to know them and love them and bless them and care for them and lead them and guide them and give them a life. That's the only reason I had kids. And it's been to my good pleasure and my great pain, but my good pleasure. I wasn't doing anyone a favor to have children except me. We are not children that God puts up with. We're sons and daughters that God enjoys. But many of us don't experience God as our father because we're still asking what's wrong with me. We're still performing. We're still assuming that God has or will reject us because we are not or have not done enough. I've been a child of God for 38 and a half years. And I'm still asking God the same question that I ask about all my relationships. And I've told you a little bit about my story, so you'll know this is why I ask this question about all relationships. Do you really love me? And when are you going to leave me? But here's the difference. And this is what's changing. This is what's moving. This is what's shifting inside my heart these days. Instead of trying harder to go be the son that I think my father won't get tired of, or to be the son that maybe my dad will read about in the newspaper and say, yeah, that's my boy. Instead of trying harder, I've just started asking the question over and over again. And I let my heavenly father answer it over and over again. So I'm really honest with him. The same way I want my kids to be honest with me. I say, God, do you really love me? He says, yes. And I say, really? He said, yes. You tired of me? Uh-uh. You kidding? No. You love me? Yes. You ever going to leave me? No, Jeff, I will never leave you or forsake me or forsake you. There is nothing that will separate you from my love, nor death, nor life, nor principality, nor ruler of darkness. There is nothing that will separate you from my love. Are you sure about that? Yes. I mean, there's nothing I've done? No. Do you love me? Yes. You're going to leave me? No. Really? Okay. Thank you. Really? Okay. Today, uh uh-huh, ask me again tomorrow, Jeff. Ask me again tomorrow, and I'll answer you the same way I answered you today. And I'm telling you, God has not stopped answering that question for me. And he has not told me he's tired of me asking. He knew it was in me. He knew I had the question. He's been waiting for me to ask it so he could answer it. I'm honest with that question. 
He knew I'd asked. And he knew I needed to hear it, which is why the scripture is so full of those answers. You know, we're getting ready to take communion together. And here's, here's, how, I want you to, here's how I want you to frame it. And I want Adam and this team to come up here. But I, I want you to frame communion for yourself this way. That, that literally, it's kind of like it happened this last weekend. I had several of my kids came home for Easter. And so, you know, my house, I got two teenage boys in my house, but it feels empty for what I'm used to. But we had several of our kids come home for Easter. And, and my wife and I went to Costco, and we laughed at how much we spent at Costco, just filling up our fridge and the pantry, just kind of like a year's worth of food for one weekend because all the kids were coming home. And, and, and it just was great having my kids around that table. And we ate, and we sat, and we laughed, and we fought, argued a little bit, and enjoyed each other, and then didn't enjoy each other, and then we stayed, and then we enjoyed each other some more, and it just all kind of happened around that table. But, you know, I was at the head of that table, and I was bringing my kids around that table because I love them, and I wanted to enjoy them, and they're my children. And when you come to the communion table today, I want you to know you're coming to a table that your father has set. Your father put the food on that table, which is his son Christ, and he invites you to come and eat and be with him, with your brothers and your sisters in his family, with him as your father. And I want Adam to set that up, but I just want you to, as you're doing that today, I want you to consciously think about what that would be like to come to that kind of table with that kind of father because that's exactly what this table represents. Amen.